Happy Wednesday. This is Ozarks at Large for June 15th, 2022. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. It was on this date in 1836, Arkansas was admitted as the 25th state to the Union. Not quite 24 years later, the state would secede to join the Confederacy in June 1868. After the Confederacy was defeated, Arkansas would be readmitted to the Union. On our show today, COVID-19's presence continues in Arkansas. Diagnosed cases are on the rise, and we'll learn more about that ahead. And in our second half hour... Why We Fight. A new book examines the reasons war takes place and the ways violence can be avoided. A conversation with Christopher Blattman about his book, Why We Fight, later this hour. Last weekend, we took Undisciplined out on the road to Northwest Arkansas Community College to celebrate Juneteenth and discuss the movement towards freedom now. Our host, Karee Banton, had a panel of guests that included Sarah Moore and Beth Coger from Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition, as well as Monique Jones, who runs the food pantry for St. James Missionary Baptist Church in Fayetteville and is a candidate for state representative as well. The conversation went deep fast, which is wonderful, and I encourage you to listen to the full episode after today's Ozarks at Large. One of the talking points that stuck out the most to me from the conversation was around dignity. Sarah Moore and Beth Coger from Arkansas Reform Justice Coalition talk at length about the jail expansion that is on the table in Washington County and the fact that the vast majority of people in the county jail are in there pre-trial which means they haven't been prosecuted, they are assumed innocent until proven guilty, more than likely they cannot afford bail to await trial outside of a jail cell. Monique Jones with The Food Pantry talks about elderly couples she has interacted with who are living in such poverty that they have to decide whether they'll eat dinner or buy life-saving prescriptions. So a big part of the conversation is about providing dignity. We begin the excerpt for today at the beginning of the conversation with our host, Karee Banton. Let me start first with Monique. Can you tell me what inspired you to create your organization? I think it was just advocacy. Advocacy for the underserved and advocacy for the individuals that don't know how to play the game and they don't know the rules of the game and they want to win. They want to be able to eat like the rest of us. They want to be able to have affordable housing. And so what I see is there's several voiceless community members, whether it's because of mobility issues, um, inclusive issues, disability issues, or racial issues, there's huge gaps and we need advocacy in those spaces to to be able to help them navigate these systems that were not built for us to win in the first place. Uh, same question for Beth and Sarah. How did the Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition come about? Okay, in January of 2019, uh, I was at the Washington County Corn Court meeting. Uh, I was there unaware of what was about to come up on the agenda, and I've considered myself to be well-informed, but and so uh, a little background first. I, I worked for 43 years um, as a paralegal office manager in a law firm, and we did a lot of criminal justice defense work. So that night when Sheriff Helder got up to uh, bring his proposal forward for a $38 million jail expansion, which would have added anywhere from 600 to 700 beds to our existing facility, and that was going to be financed with sales tax. Uh, First of all, I was shocked. I couldn't believe we were even thinking about that, but I knew that that wasn't the answer. I knew that we did not need more jail beds uh, because I had worked with people for 43 years in my in my profession, and I knew that what we needed were to address the reasons why so many people get in the criminal justice system. That's why I was there, and it just happened that Sarah was there, and I'll let her tell that. But uh, anyway, so we met that night, and uh, out of that came this grassroots organization, Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition, and I'm proud to be part of that still. Well, you know, and and we didn't invent or start anything that day that wasn't on the shoulders of the giants before us. Um, And unfortunately, um, even the work we've done, you know, today, while it's made a dent, you know, hasn't solved it all. And so there's plenty of work for all of us to do. But I think overall, though, where individuals in the community have felt compelled 
to step up and why you see a growing movement conversation in our state is that I think it's that straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, for so long, some of us, especially, you know, white folks that are comfortable enough, um, we're fed a lie and grow up sometimes being told that system over there is harmful and it's dangerous. Just don't get entrapped in it. And so you think that somehow, you know, you're doing something and your ability that's keeping you out of it. And so I think sometimes whenever you um, open your critical thinking skills and you really start to see your full community and you hear the human stories of who's been entrapped, um, then when you're personally impacted, you know, there isn't any pocket of our community when you talk to different families, no matter what your your socioeconomic um, breakdown, who's, who's potentially been entrapped in this criminal injustice system in one way or the other. And particularly, unfortunately, um, people of color um, have more surveillance on them, um, have less, less um, economic mobility education. And so the reason I think that our organization has continued to grow with momentum is that um, we've really tried to say that we want to be a collective voice with everyone's experience in our region and across our state, um, that we identify that all Arkansans um, should be empowered to be enfranchised in every part of our state, um, and we're not going to rest until that happens. And so whatever we have to do, like we're here for that work for the long term. And I want to stay with you and your group, the Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition, you're concerned about mass incarceration, but in Northwest Arkansas, what spurred you into action is a specific issue. What is that issue? Well, unfortunately, it's that de facto solution or easy button approach that we see time and time again um, in our pocket of Arkansas and across the state of trying to solve um, for so many um, lack of safety net and opportunities and lack of investment with additional policing and incarceration. Um, in Washington County today, um, we feel more comfortable paying to put someone in our jail for a year of $35,000 than we see investing in them for affordable housing, um, to in improve food, food security for their families, to give them opportunities for second and third, fourth chance employment um, as they exit out of prison or a carceral setting. Um, and so, um, I think you think those are the reasons. And Monique, the direct issues that we're trying to address here in Northwest Arkansas. One of the, the direct issues that we're trying to direct, um, address in addition to the jail expansion in, is food insecurity. It's, it's prevalent. It was already there prior to the pandemic. The pandemic just exposed that people were suffering in silence with no food, having to make a decision as a elderly, do I buy my medicine or do I buy food? That shouldn't have to be a choice in our community if elderly want to eat every night. And it's, it was... It, became even worse during the pandemic that we started collaborating with Community Clinic. And we identified individuals that were even malnutrition because they were having to make a choice. Do I eat just one piece of bread today? Do I bite off of a piece of bread? And then you're trying to take care of a parent. And so me and my mom are sharing one piece of bread every day. Why is that a choice in this community today? And I saw that your organization is also partnering with immigrant, uh, immigrant um, organization as well to feed immigrant communities. That is correct. So we, we partnered through the pandemic, not just with Canopy, which is a refugee reselling community, the immigrant community, as well as Rooted, which served the Hispanic community, ACOM, the Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese, and several other community members, because it, food insecurity doesn't have a race. It doesn't have a gender. It doesn't have a socioeconomic background. Food insecurity can hit anybody, anytime, any day. But then why are children also going without eating during the summer or when there's breaks? Understand that some, most children, if we're number two in the nation, most children, when it's time for a break, you have people that are thinking about going on vacation. Well, they're worried that their only meal that they eat every week is at school. And so now there's anxiety that's sitting in that we're going to be out for summer break all summer. And now you have to worry about 
not having any access to food. I appreciate the fact that the school districts are now addressing food insecurity during summer times and summer breaks, but this should have been happening prior to the pandemic because these same children were wondering what were they going to be able to eat during the summertime. Well, and that goes back into investments in our children and our families because Mm -hmm. as a state in Arkansas saying that we care about families and we're pro-life, but oftentimes those investments, again, are going to carceral settings and not necessarily in the family. One of the really neat studies that's circulating right now that Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families is putting out there that folks should Google for and look at our website, I'm sorry, our Facebook, we've reshared it because it's staggering. Behavioral um, uh, instances of of acting out and and instances of school discipline actually went down after we invested in feeding kids after the bell. So meeting their food needs in schools has decreased the need for um, other alternatives to to deal with uh, kids that are showing their trauma, showing their lack of or of have being to fed. encounter the school resource officer, where you know that creates that pipeline for them to be in the carceral system. Absolutely. The panel gets into a conversation about barriers for those experiencing food insecurity, as well as what action steps are in the works to help with jail reform, along with a whole host of other topics. You can hear the full episode today, wherever you get your podcasts. Undisciplined is a production of KUAF and Ozarks at Large. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of amenities, including apartments, cottages, and village home living options. Information at butterfieldtrailvillage.org. NPR and KUAF will continue to deliver live coverage of the hearings into the January 6th violence at the U.S. Capitol Tomorrow, we'll hear the session conducted in the House of Representatives tomorrow beginning at noon. That means there will not be a noon edition of Ozarks at Large, but we do plan to be with you for a 7 p.m. show tomorrow night. COVID-19 infections are rising in Arkansas after a spring respite. Experts recommend getting tested if exposed to the virus. Rapid COVID-19 antigen test kits are widely available for purchase at local drugstores and retailers for home testing. The U.S. government is also distributing free test kits through the mail. Ozarks at Large's Jacqueline Froelich reports on self-testing best practices, as well as how to make any positive test count. Dr. Jennifer Dillahay is director of the Arkansas Department of Health. She says rapid COVID-19 self-tests are best to use under certain circumstances. If they know they've been exposed or if they aren't sure, but they're going to an important event where they don't want to expose other people or they're going to visit their 90-year-old grandmother and they want to make sure that they couldn't spread it. Rapid COVID-19 tests can be purchased over the counter. Insurance may reimburse costs or obtained for free from the federal government at covid.gov tests. The 15-minute tests can be taken anywhere, regardless of vaccination status or symptoms. The kit contains a sterile nasal swab, test solution, a sealed dropper test tube, and a sterile plastic test card. So the way the tests work is you take a swab and um, rub it and twirl it around on the inside of your nose. Brush inside your nose five times, a half inch inside each nostril, then immerse the swab into the test tube solution, stirring 15 times. Then twist on the dropper cap and squeeze three drops onto the test tray port. Within 15 minutes, either one or two red stripes will appear in a little window next to the port, two stripes indicating a positive test. If the proteins from the virus that causes COVID-19 are there, the test hopefully will be positive. One of the things that's important is there might not be enough proteins from the virus to trigger the test to be positive. So it's possible that you could still have COVID-19 in the virus and have a negative test because you just haven't developed enough virus particles in your nose. The self-tests measure the presence of specific COVID-19 infection antigens. 
Antigens are molecules that stimulate an immune response to viral infection. The home tests, however, cannot detect COVID-19 antibodies. Those are deployed by the immune system to identify and neutralize pathogenic bacteria and virus. Self-test kits, which can detect multiple COVID-19 variants presently circulating, come to in a box for repeat testing to confirm either a negative or positive result. Serial testing should be conducted at least 24, but no more than 48 hours apart. The people who have symptoms and suspect they may have COVID and they have one of these negative home tests, they should go and get a PCR test somewhere. The PCR tests can pick up on a smaller number of viral particles. And the way it does it is the PCR test looks for the genetic material of the virus that causes COVID-19. And it goes through an amplification process before it runs the test. So it multiplies the genetic material if it's there. And so the test is more likely to detect it. That's why we want a PCR test in some situations, especially people who have symptoms and their COVID-19 test is negative. PCR, or polymerase chain reaction tests, conducted by a healthcare provider, can detect the genetic material from SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. A PCR test can also detect fragments of the virus even after you are no longer infected. Home antigen tests are useful to detect only current infection. So if you're negative, especially if you don't have symptoms, it might be worth repeating the test in a day or two to uh, see if by that point, if you have the virus, it would show up on the test. There would be enough replication of the virus that there'd be enough proteins to trigger the test to turn positive. So that's the value of these tests is detecting the infection so that you can take steps to choose not to do certain activities where you could expose people. The other thing that's important is if you're in a group of people who would have severe illness if you were to get infected, if you can get tested early, then you can get an antiviral treatment potentially or a monoclonal antibody treatment that would keep you from progressing to the point you would need to be admitted to the hospital. Being immunized and boosted against COVID-19 is the best defense against hospitalization and death, experts say, similar to obtaining an influenza vaccine. After the shot, if infection occurs, symptoms tend to be much milder. Positive COVID-19 cases are rising once again in Arkansas and are tracked and reported by the Arkansas Department of Health. Only clinical PCR and antigen test results count. Positive home test results are not counted. So the true infection rate remains unknown. We are interested in the number of cases to understand whether the case numbers are going up or down. We're not so interested in the exact number of cases. Arkansas counts over 5,000 active cases of COVID-19 right now. Dillahay says one metric, however closely monitored, are hospitalizations, which can reveal any ominous trends. Since a global pandemic was declared, 11,500 Arkansans have died due to COVID-19. She says the Omicron variant of concern right now that's circulating in Arkansas is BA.2.12.1, which is more transmissible than the alpha virus and previous variants and causes upper respiratory illness rather than lower respiratory distress. Two new variants are also circulating, which are even more infectious, Dillahay says. I would encourage people to consider masking whenever they're in a situation where transmission in their community is higher, or if they're going to be in a crowded situation where the ventilation is poor, or when they're going to be around a lot of people that they don't know, and they don't know their vaccination status or their possibility that they may have been exposed or 
you know, like at the grocery store, things like that. There people may choose to do that in order to protect themselves. It doesn't do any harm to mask when uh, you're out and about, and it may actually give you some benefit. Only 53% of Arkansans are fully vaccinated against COVID-19 right now. That's why wearing a well-fitted mask in public and physically distancing will help to reduce the spread. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jacqueline Froelich. Dr. Dillahay also spoke to KUAF about the increasing number of COVID-19-related hospitalizations in Arkansas, as figures jumped to highest levels in almost three months. And on May 4th, we had 40 people in the hospital with COVID. That was our low point, and it's been up since then. So now we're up to 185 people in the hospital, actually 186. Dr. Dillahay added that eight out of the 186 patients are on ventilators, and there are fewer in the intensive care unit in hospitals statewide. She also informed that there are treatments available for those infected with COVID-19, which could help to lessen rising hospitalization figures. Well, I would like to add that we now have some treatments available for people if they get infected with COVID-19. One of them is called Paxlovid, and it has been shown to keep people out of the hospital if they start it within five days after they begin to have their symptoms. So I encourage people if they have symptoms that could be COVID-19 to don't delay, get tested right away and talk to your doctor so that you can get a prescription for Paxlovid and hopefully it can help you stay out of the hospital. Paxlovid works by blocking the ability of the virus to multiply itself. So it lessens the severity of the infection. And in that way, it lessens the severity of the disease. People should consult the health department's website if they are not able to easily find one at their pharmacy. Um, but they are available all around the state. Dr. Dillahay talked with us yesterday afternoon. I first became a KUAF listener to learn more about Arkansas and its communities, and I became a member because of its focus on vital, one-of-a-kind local reporting. Since becoming a member, I feel I'm doing my part to ensure this essential coverage continues at my public radio station. Support all you love about your public radio station in the month of June at supportkuaf.com. Thank you. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. While it may not officially be summer yet, the thermometer certainly says it is. Throughout the month of June, we'll be sharing some summer reading lists with local independent bookstores. And we hear first from our friends at Two Friends Books in Bentonville. We are getting into summer reading season. For a lot of folks, this is a chance to kind of disengage your brain from the normal run-of-the-mill books, kind of take a chance to get away, whether it's physically or literally um, or literarily. <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll pretend that's the word. I see what you did there. And, um, and it's also a chance for us to kind of binge into a new series, kind of take a chance to dive into a storyline and really follow that through. And so Monica and Rachel, you both have book ideas and suggestions that kind of follow those ideas, right? Yes. So, Monica, we'll start with you. Tell us about the books that you're recommending folks to read this summer. Yeah. So, um, both the books I picked uh, take place in Italy, which I just dream about going to Italy. I still don't have any trips planned um, since the pandemic, but... Maybe this is a sign that Italy should be my next trip. <laughs> um, but the first one is From Scratch, A Memoir of Love, Sicily and Finding Home by Tembi Locke. Tembi is a poet and actress and has a really famous TEDx talk, if you want to look it up. But basically, this tells the story of her falling in love with an Italian chef while she's studying abroad um, in college. And it follows their love story. He gets diagnosed with cancer like a decade into their marriage. But the story really picks up after his death. She kind of, they had become estranged from his family during that time. Um, 
but she moves back to Sicily for the summer to spend time with his mother and grandmother on their farm in Sicily. And it's really all about like healing through food and family and getting back to the land and just that connection to um, cooking, nurturing each other, how we take care of each other, all taking place in like the Sicilian countryside. Um, it's also oh, dreamy. I know it sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> it's also getting adapted by Reese Witherspoon into a TV show. So here is your chance to read it before the show comes out. Yeah. I want to take a moment to say I love my wife dearly and I would not be where I am without her. But if I had to fall in love with someone else, a Sicilian chef sounds yes. like the right kind <laughs> sounds of person. Great. Right. <laughs> <laughs> the next one uh, is a little older of a book. Uh, it's by Natalia Ginsberg, who um, lived in Italy during the fascist era in the 30s and 40s. Um, and so she is a political activist, but she also roots her writing and experience like so deeply in the home and just domestic life in Italy. Um, and I think sometimes when I travel, I forget to appreciate like the small moments or just like enjoying the people I'm with because I have this anxiety about like, is this really the best coffee shop we could have chosen? <laughs> or like, <laughs> what's next on the itinerary? Or like my planning mind getting the best of me. Um, and so I actually have been recently reading The Little Virtues by Natalia Ginsburg. And it's just so beautifully um, done in that it's so simple. And she's just really like describing daily life. And the things that loom the largest in her writing are those, like, little daily um, experiences and interactions with family, um, like mothers sitting around the table for tea talking about, like, how they're going to set up their kids and who's going to get married and <laughs> things like that. And so um, – but there are these the these bigger themes, but the only glimpses you catch of them are in, like, those gestures or those conversations. And so it's really beautiful that you're just observing all of this, almost like you're watching this film, and it's it's kind of meditative in that way and kind of reminds me, like, oh, yeah, even though all these things are happening around me, like, I should really just enjoy this little moment and, like, the beauty in it and staying present. And you can just pick that book up and read an essay here and there, and I kind of like that about it as well. So yeah. The Little Virtues by Natalia Ginsburg. Fantastic. Awesome. Rachel, you have a few suggestions for us, right? I do. So I took a little bit of a different tack. Um, I was thinking about, you know, summertime, you know, when you're in school, summer is like the epitome of like enjoyment. And Jennifer Weiner, who is a super popular kind of beach ready author, um, recently said that summer reading is all about pleasure. And I I agree. Like that's that that this is the time to like really have fun with what you're reading and just go with it. And like, Yes, let's let's do what we want to do here. So I have four different series that I'd like to recommend. Um, and this is going from like early childhood, early readers up to adult books. So the first is a classic beloved series by Mo Williams called Elephant and Piggy. There's several books in this series. Uh, I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. They both love it. Um, if you're, if you have a kid at home who's just learning to read, it's also fantastic for um, an early reader. But one of the things I love the most, especially in one of the books in the series called "We Are in a Book," is um, <laughs> the author breaks down the fourth wall. <laughs> yeah. And are, are you familiar with that concept, the fourth wall? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay. Little kids love books that do this. Yeah. It's like they're they're in on the joke, you know, and, and I think that it makes books feel a little bit more like, I'm a part of this. Yeah, very invitational. Yeah, it's super invitational. We are in a book. It breaks down the fourth wall. My kids crack up every time we read it. My two-year-old literally sleeps with this book. Mm. Um, but all of the books in this series are great. Mo Williams has, like, really captured the preschool sense of humor. <laughs> uh, Which is also my sense of humor, so that's great. <laughs> You're right, yeah. Without it being, like, gross, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I would definitely recommend that series. Elephant and Piggy. And then next, I'd like to recommend also it started out as a book series and was made into a television series on Netflix. It's called Heartstopper. And the show is currently on Netflix, and I highly recommend watching it for, mm -hmm. for those of you out there. But as they say, the book is always better than the movie. Mm -hmm. So here we are. Uh, it's by Alice Oseman, and it's a series of four graphic novels, which uh, it, it's these are YA books, but I think that anybody between the ages of like, you know, 
13, 14, and, you know, fully grown-ups <laughs> would really enjoy this series. It's about two boys in high school who are kind of trying to figure themselves out. One is um, openly gay, uh, but he was sort of outed without his consent. consent. Exactly. And has dealt with bullying and all this stuff. And uh, then the other character, the main character, is like the rugby star player. It takes place in the UK. And their story is so beautiful. It's so sweet without being saccharine, which is like a really thin line to walk. Yeah. And I just, I highly recommend it. So, so, so that's a good one. Um, also, graphic novels are fantastic summer reading. Yeah. They're fantastic reading all year round, but like, uh, especially for teenagers who are maybe a little bit hesitant to pick up a book during yeah. the summertime, graphic novels is like excellent way to go. And then I was thinking about adult series and as a bookseller, my taste is not always everybody else's taste, and mm. I recognize that. Like, I was thinking about when my husband and I went to our honeymoon, we each brought books with us. We went to, we honeymooned in uh, Costa Rica. So, very like beach read setting. I brought Bel Canto by Ann Patchett and uh, Bridget Jones' Diary. Mm -hmm. So I'm like fully in beach reading mode. Mm -hmm. And my husband brings The Color Purple by Alice <laughs> Walker. And some Kurt Vonnegut book. I don't even remember what it was. So it's like, listen, Those are different, very different choices for different <laughs> folks. And I get it and I respect that. Yeah. So I have two kind of different ideas for, for adult series. Um, the first is the Outline series by Rachel Cusk, um, which is more in the like literary tradition. It's three books in the series. And OK, so. There's I'm I'm gonna backtrack for a second. Mm -hmm. There's this poem by Emily Dickinson. And do you mind if I, I just like tell you it? Okay. I don't know if I'm gonna get it all right, but uh, it's like tell all the truth, but tell it slant, success in circuit lies, to blind for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprised. Like lightning to the children told with explanation kind. I think I got that wrong. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Mm. So the idea is that sometimes to get at the heart of something, you have to approach it from like a slanted angle. Mm -hmm. Like if you go straight forward, you don't always grasp the heart of an issue. Right. And that's kind of what Rachel Cusk is doing in this series. It's a, it's a bunch of conversations between this main character. They all take place in Greece. Mm. The setting is gorgeous. So, like, kind of like Monica, if you're wanting to escape mm -hmm. to, like, a beautiful Mediterranean <laughs> locale, <laughs> this is a good book for that. But, yeah, it's just a series of conversations with the main character and the people that she encounters on a trip to Greece. Mm. And she's exploring, you know, the ways that we, the ways that we humans connect with each other. And basically, I, I don't want to go into too much detail here, so you can read it for yourself, but it's fantastic. Highly recommend it. The Outline Series by Rachel Cusk. Mm. And then finally, more on the like Rachel side of the beach reading. Obviously. Um, so I just have such a soft spot in my heart slash mostly read genre fiction. So I'm going to recommend the Crescent City series by Sarah J. Moss. And this is for people who are into fantasy, like high fantasy, or people who are into romance. Like both of those, those two don't always mix, but uh, Sarah J. Moss really kind of plays with both genres in a fun way. These books are kind of ridiculous. There's something like 800 pages each. Oh, wow. so, so far there's two. So... But the covers are beautiful, so you'll feel, like, very, very good, you know, walk into the pool, carrying your book. Like, it's, it's going to be great. You'll get some good glances. You'll get some good glances. But, you know, there's, like, there's a quest. There, it's a, got a lot of auxiliary characters that come into play. So it's got a great world building. Sarah J. Moss is an expert world builder. So if you're into that kind of thing, I would like to recommend that. And 
there are some tie-ins with this series from her previous series. Mm. So if you're like, two books, I need more, <laughs> you, you can get more. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, the Crescent City series by Sarah J. Moss is my other Beach Read recommendation. That's awesome. And folks, if, if they're looking to buy any of these books, they can find them at your bookstore. Can you tell us where that is and where they can find it? Yep, Two Friends Books. We're at the corner of Southwest B and 7th Street in downtown Benville. Very good. Monica Diodati, Rachel Stucky Slayton, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having yeah, us. Thank you. We'll have a rundown of those book suggestions to peruse on our website, ozarksatlarge.com. And you can look forward to more summer reading lists throughout the month. Just ahead, Christopher Blattman discusses his book, Why We Fight, about the reasons we go to war and the ways we can avoid conflict. The Arkansas women's track and field program is being named the best in the country for the just-completed 2021-22 season. While the Razorbacks did not claim a national championship this past season, they did have the best across-the-board results in cross-country, indoor, and outdoor track. It's the first time the Razorbacks have won the Terry Crawford Women's Division I Program of the Year Award. BYU finished second in those overall standings. Arkansas placed eighth in NCAA cross-country, fourth at the indoors, sixth at the NCAA outdoors. BYU finished second in cross-country, eighth indoors, and tied for ninth outdoors. And the second annual Arkansas Black Film Showcase will be at Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art in Bentonville tomorrow night from 6 until 10. Featured filmmakers include Nikita Reed, the producer of Heart and Soul YouTube series, Kaylin Richardson, the director of The Prize, and Rhea Clay, producer of SportsCenter Presents 2020, Heroes, History, and Hope. Much more information can be found at crystalbridges.org. Washington Regional awarded the highest score possible in the spring 2022 LeapFrog Hospital Safety Grades, offers compassionate, quality health care while prioritizing patient safety, continuously growing to meet the changing needs of the community. Washington Regional, nationally recognized care, here for you. This is Ozarks at Large. The invasion of Ukraine by Russian forces is only a recent example of tensions escalating to violence, to war. In his new book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and Paths to Peace, Christopher Blattman examines the reasons countries, gangs, and factions resort to violence. But he has also studied why certain episodes don't spill into bloodshed. During a recent conversation with us, Blattman explained those paths to peace aren't really difficult. So most people think War is easy and peace is hard. And so this book is actually about war being hard and peace is easier than we think, which is kind of a hard thing to uh, to say right now, right, amidst all of this chaos. But, you know, two weeks into Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, India launched a cruise missile by accident in Pakistan in common suit, right, because war, war would have been ruinous. So they strove not to do it. And most American school kids learn about the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan, and they will for generations. None of them are going to learn about the U.S. invasion of Haiti in 1994, when Colin Powell showed up to the dictator, showed him a video, and said, look, there's a bunch of Americans taking off in planes with equipment. And that's not live. That took place two hours ago, and they're almost here. And so he surrendered. So enemies, enemies prefer to loathe in peace. As you write in Why We Fight... There are many reasons, and as you just mentioned, there are many reasons not to fight. Civil war, invasions can be ruinous, and that can stem progress of any kind that those in power don't want stemmed. Right. I mean, and, and so the reason we fight, like war is ruinous. The reason we fight is because something led our nation, our group, our gang, whatever we are, something left led us to ignore those costs of war. And if there's one thing to remember is that every answer to why we fight is some reason that we or our leaders forgot just how ruinous is war. Often you write in this 305-page book that you can't go into all the details about perhaps what led to violence in Sudan. Yeah, And I feel like I should give that disclaimer for this book. We can't in 20 minutes talk about everything that's in this book. But I love your use sometimes, not of pie graphs, but just of these sorts of circles about sharing. Yeah. And it may be about territory or wealth or even reputation. And the idea is negotiation is often preceding the last result, which would be violence. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, 
often we never get to violence, right? Because you kind of have this choice. There's a pie. You and I have to share pie. And we can split it according to how strong you're stronger than me. You're going to get more pie, right? But uh, so we have a choice. I can either accept a small share of the pie being weaker or we can fight. And that's going to destroy a big share of the pie. And then I've got some chance of getting it. And the, the fact is, is we basically, it's almost always better to split that pie before you destroy some of it. And that's what 999 times out of a thousand happens. But we do have those thousandth times. Yeah. We do fight. Uh, we being the big royal we. And and you say that this isn't an end all be all, but there are kind of five different things that could lead to to violence and conflict. Yeah. I didn't write a book called Why We Don't Fight. I wrote a book called Why We Fight. And and all five of those are it basically says, you know, it feels like there's a reason for every war and a war for every reason, but it actually comes down to five kinds of reasons, five ways we ignore the costs. The first is what I call unchecked leaders. So let me use Russia as an example. Putin is an autocrat. He's a personalized ruler. He can ignore most of the costs because he's not accountable for them. All right. Second, intangible incentives. So, or ideological incentives. And this is the story we hear when uh, we say that Putin has these nationalist ambitions or these dreams of personal glory. So he knows the costs. He's willing to pay those costs for his intangible ideological aims. Third, uncertainty. Uh, we forget just how uncertain so many things were before the war, the, the Russian military strength, Ukrainian pluckiness, Western resolve on sanctions. And when things are that uncertain, war can be a gamble. There's also misperceptions, that's number four, right? Because in this uncertain world, we also are can be biased. And when you hear stories of Putin being isolated, overconfident, underestimating the costs, those are all stories of misperceptions. And then the last is commitment problems. So it's just something strategists, uh, it's, it's, it's when one side can't commit to a deal and, in, and, and, and you wanna lock in your advantage. So think about Putin looking at Ukraine in 2022, they're getting closer to the Western democracy and they can't commit not to do that. They're acquiring Turkish drones, they're building their own Neptune missiles, they're maybe gonna get long range missiles from the West that's really hard for them to commit not to do that and to get stronger in the future. So I can pay a cost and lock in my advantage today. And so that's a commitment problem that sort of all of these things, like all of these things leads Putin to ignore the costs or to be willing to pay them. The one that resonated most with me was uncertainty. And, and you mm -hmm. write about that in the uncertainty about WMDs in Iraq. Mm -hmm. Saddam Hussein, you write, you know, thought it was to his advantage to not explain just what he did or didn't have, be it nuclear or chemical weapons. He was also concerned about internal strife being overthrown as well as external strife. He was uncertain about just how far... American forces would go. And all these uncertainties, all this ambiguity led to conflict. Right. I mean, this is a great example of one where we pay attention to blood for oil, George W. Bush avenging his daddy, all these, all these things can be true. And we overlook the strategic incentives that were also there, the cold calculating selfish reasons uh, that, that, that the United States went to war. It's a combination of uncertainty and commitment problems because, because, Saddam Hussein had a hard time committing not to uh, not to acquire a nuclear weapon because it would have just made him so much more powerful vis-a-vis -vis all these other enemies because the United States wasn't even enemy number one. It was enemy number four after Israel, after Iran, and after his own people. And so uh, so that would have been terrible. And, and whether or not he could restart his weapons program in a year or six months or three years was fundamentally uncertain. And so that was the overwhelming strategic incentive to sort of lock in the American advantage now before he could acquire those weapons in future. And then blood for oil and avenge my daddy might've contributed to that, right? But we have to, we can't ignore the strategic incentives. This brings up an interesting point, the cost of wanting to use the shorthand, the yeah. easy A to B explanation for why conflict happened and not willing to go deeper or think more historically or wider about why we might be moving toward a conflict. Yeah, I mean, imagine you went to your doctor and you get halfway through your symptoms and he says, Tylenol and radiology. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, you didn't even listen to these. Like, don't worry, covering all my bases. And, and you would get a new doctor, right? And because you want someone who diagnoses you before you get your treatment. And that's maybe the mistake we make. We sort of leap. We're like, oh, you know, 
we need we need this and and we need we need sanctions we need this and as if every war is the same and no we need to diagnose it we need to understand these sort of subtle strategic roots we have to understand the psychological the intangibles and misperceptions and 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 then have the tailored treatment for for each kind of dispute the subtitle, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace. I want to talk about the paths to peace, but before we get there, you write that there are three kind of common reactions we can have when we hear about war and conflict. And I'm sure many of us are having these reactions now with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. One could be it's just so far away. Two, yeah. it's it's just something I I want to help, but I don't know how. And three, it's just yeah. too overwhelming. And you say we can have all three of those at once. Yeah. No, I certainly do. Um, you know, I think what I... I try to make people realize in the book. So I talk about the past of peace. I talk about what humanity has done. I talk about what we can do in our own cities and have done what we can do in our own countries, what we can do internationally. And like the hopeful message is that, well, it's really hard and there's no magic solution, but actually all these little efforts matter. And fundamentally they work because they compel the two sides to focus on those costs. And they roll back all these five reasons they ignore the costs. And, and that there's actually like a tangible path to peace that we can go down one step at a time. One thing that's wonderful about why we fight is you do personalize. You take global conflicts or, or inner city violence, but you can personalize it. And I'm thinking of John Prendergast. Yeah. Who, who was this uh, – is this person in Africa who's trying to he's, – he's, he's trying to um, create peace or, or move towards peace. He enlists George Clooney to yeah. – to, to, to bring more attention to conflict. And you write about him, he kind of stops in the middle and says, I'm going to change what I'm concentrating on. How did right. how did that work? That's what I admire about him. So many of us just keep doubling down on the thing we're doing that's failing. Uh, it happens too often. He didn't. So he, you know, if you've heard about the, the genocide in Darfur over the last two decades, it was probably because of his efforts with George Clooney and Don Cheadle. Uh, he, he basically started a huge activist organization called the Enough Project. Um, but, you know, after years of this, he just thought this actually isn't working enough because those dictators in Sudan that I'm trying to and these military generals, they keep inviting me to tea and I can keep going to Sudan. I can even get a visa like I can't possibly be really hurting these guys. So he he got rid of the activists and he hired a bunch of forensic accountants and ex-Treasury Department people and anti-terror types. And, and they started tracing the money. And they didn't just go after the dictators. They went over after all their enablers, the, the shady businessman from, from South Africa or Israel or some lawyer from Panama that was enabling these guys as well. And then they worked with the Treasury Department, the banks to freeze their money. And uh, and he very quickly stopped getting invited to tea and he can't get visas anymore, which is maybe a pretty good indicator it's, it's working. And it's an illustration, not just of how we um, how we how we can you know always do better, but it's also an illustration of why you know targeted sanctions can sometimes work because he's going to these unchecked leaders and he's saying, you don't, you're not accountable. Well, we'll provide you some accountability uh, and we're going to reverse that unchecknedness. You, you write much about, um conflict between nations over centuries. Mm -hmm. and But you also write about violence that takes place inside a city or inside a country yeah. that might be over resources or territory. Are there similarities between the big global conflicts and ones that might be confined to a city or a neighborhood? Yeah. I mean, for 20 years, my day job has been Initially, I was working civil wars in East and West Africa with rebels groups and, and states trying to create peace in villages that where there was ethnic conflict. Now I work more and more with gangs and mafias in Latin America and here in Chicago. And the thing that struck me as, as I was trying to understand why they fought and what are the paths to peace here is just how many echoes there were of all of the things I'd learned in, about war between nations. And so I wanted to write a book to sort of, obviously these things are really different and the solutions are different, right? But I wanted to focus on what they had in common and also what we can learn from some of these things. Cause I think we can learn about what to do at an international level from the local level and vice versa. You wrote that, uh, I think you had a professor in college who, who, who discussed uh, major film blockbusters and there seems to be this theme that a hero right. is wronged early and we watch because we wanna see whether whether you want to be uh, charitable justice or vengeance by the right. end of the of the third reel, does that affect? Does popular culture affect how we might view conflict? 
So I use that as an example, as in one of these intangible incentives, one of these reasons we might want to fight, right? Like somebody wrongs us and we want to punish them. We want to see justice. And you can see that dynamic in uh, Northern Ireland, right? Police have, you know, roughed up all the boys on my block. I'm going to go throw a firebomb, right? That's that's a reason to fight despite the fact that I really shouldn't. And um, so, you know, but does popular culture drive us to fight? I'd say, no, what I worry about is propaganda, right? What I worry about is when dictators, but frankly, also Fox News or MSNBC, whatever rage machine you have in your country, what I worry about is when they rile people up to be so angry at the enemy that they just see, they just want blood. And that's a little bit what's happening right now here with, with respect to Putin is like, Chinese General Sun Tzu told us, build your opponent a golden bridge to retreat upon because you want a settlement ultimately. And we are so rageful, justifiably so, right? But we are so rageful that we have to at least think about the consequence of that, which is we might actually point Putin towards a perilous chasm, not not a golden bridge. Well, and you write so well about how propaganda doesn't need everybody. It needs just enough. Uh, As the Nazis came in against the Weimar group, they got just enough to start winning seats. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just it's not every Russian that believes in these national names. It wasn't every German that that bought into the Nazi creed. Um, You yeah, you just need enough. All right. I've got to ask about putting together this book because it's 305 pages and you cover this is smallest Chicago, Darfur, medieval Europe, the American Revolution, India, the WMDs in Iraq, Athens, Sparta, uh, the prairie provinces of Canada, the troubles in northern (laughs) Ireland. I mean, how did you work to make this such kind of an easy read for us? Well, I mean, it's, you stand on the shoulder of giants. You know, this is the thing, like, we know, like, scholars, every social science, every story, like, we we know so much after 50 years about why we fight and how to stop it. And yet, you know, I would meet world leaders, gang leaders, uh, village leaders, and nobody knew this, right? And so so I just had to boil down what was already sort of laying in plain sight because it was like a secret that everyone was keeping. And it was time to sort of let everybody else in, in on the secret. Ultimately, I was surprised that when I finished Why We Fight, I found it to be an optimistic book. I mean, it details civil wars and atrocities that have gone on for millennia. But there was this not just this glimmer, there was this path of of hope at the end. Yeah. I mean, I found myself by accident in a war zone when starting out, and it was overwhelming and depressed. Just talking to women whose children were abducted, homes destroyed, government displaces them. It's just and and yet over the years as I would work at finding ways to help, uh, I just saw a lot of things at work. And I saw a lot of people just taking this one step at a time and actually making this better at the local level, at the global level. And so I, I don't want to say there's magic solutions and we're just on this, like tramping down this path to world peace. Like, but, but hard work will pay off is maybe the message. Christopher Blattman is the Ramelly E. Pearson Professor of Global Conflict Studies at the University of Chicago. And he's the author of the book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and Paths to Peace. He talked with us by Zoom. On Monday, the committee investigating the January 6th attack began laying out their case against former President Trump. They believe he pushed to overturn the 2020 election, even though he knew he'd lost. I told them that it was that it was uh, crazy stuff and they were wasting their time on that. Join us for live special coverage and analysis of the next public hearing tomorrow from NPR News. This is KUAF 91.3 FM, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Springdale, and Decatur. Contributors today included Jacqueline Froelich and Rachel Sanchez-Smith. Timothy Dennis produced today's show. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Tomorrow's noon show is scheduled to be preempted by the hearing into the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, but... No worries. We will return tomorrow night at 7 with a brand new edition. Thank you so much for being with us this hour. If you ever miss us, don't forget there is an Ozarks at Large podcast that's available through any podcast distributor. You can also ask your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. And you can use the KUAF app that's available for iPhone and iPad. There are current and past editions of Ozarks at Large there. Hey, you can always go to OzarksAtLarge.com. Thanks so much. 
Be safe. We'll talk to you again soon.